for the most part, in our society today, we've kind of conquered the night. We have, especially in metropolitan areas like ours, stores open 24-7. You can always find some place to get what you need. Restaurants open. Internet's on all the time. We have lights, motion detectors with infrared cameras so you can capture the night. You don't have to, you have to see the night as quite so mysterious. I remember as a child, even television stations signed off, all of them, at the end of the day. Some of you remember this? Now, for some of you, that might bring fond memories of easier times. For some of you, that scares the daylights out of you to think. No Netflix, no Hulu, no videos, no DVD players. You couldn't watch anything after television stopped. Maybe that's why something like Silent Night is so appealing to us, that there's quiet at the end of the day. The story behind this song we're going to look at today, and I hope you've been enjoying this look at some of the Christmas songs and the scriptures behind them. Today, Silent Night is where we're going to look at. So let me tell you a little bit of the story. In 1818, there was a group of actors who were performing Christmas story throughout um, the Advent story throughout the Austrian Alps. And December 23rd, they came to a town called Oberndorf near Salzburg, where they were going to reenact the story of Christ's birth at a small church called the Church of St. Nicholas. The, the organ wasn't working at the church, and that was a critical piece in their big production, so they had to figure out another plan because it couldn't be repaired before Christmas. So they did their presentation in a home, and people gathered in the home, and they did the reenactment of the birth of Jesus from Matthew and Luke. And that got the assistant pastor, a man named Joseph Moore, thinking. He began to really think about this story and the, the, the simplicity of having to do this in this home and not having the organ and the church alongside. So he's walking home from that production that evening, and he took a longer path to get home. Normally he walks straight home, but he took a longer path up the hillside, and when you're in the Alps, I think it's probably very picturesque. And he was looking up from a hill over this little town, all decked out for Christmas with the lights, and he became very contemplative. And he remembered a poem he had written some years earlier, a poem based on the shepherd's experience of the angelic message of Jesus' birth. And he started thinking that that poem would be an incredible uh, basis for a song for Christmas Eve the next day. Uh, the problem was he didn't have any music, so he went and found the next day the church organist, Franz Gruber, and Gruber only had a few hours to come up with some music to accompany this poem that Moore had written. Uh, unfortunately, the organ was still broken, so they couldn't use the organ, so uh, Gruber put together a musical setting for this poem that could be sung not with an organ but with a guitar. And on Christmas Eve in 1818, this little Oberndorf congregation heard Gruber and Moore sing this song for the very first time, Silent Night. I want to look at these verses and draw some scriptural support. In fact, I'm going to look at the same passage in Luke chapter 2 that Don did last week. So if you want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Last week, Don looked at this kind of focusing on the angels, and today we're going to look at the same passage of scripture, focusing more on the shepherd's perspective and what they experienced here. But let's look at the first verse of Silent Night as we start. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, 
sleep in heavenly peace. So Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read, start with the first seven verses if you want to follow along in your Bible or in the YouVersion Bible app. If you go to events and first free, you'll find the scripture listed there. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census, and because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no lodging available for them. So Joseph, the context of this story, Joseph, along with other people in the Roman provinces, were required to leave wherever they were at, go back to their hometown to register in this census. And we don't know a lot about the census that was taken there. There might have been other opportunities or events like this throughout the Roman Empire at various times during the year. But Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem from Nazareth, likely with throngs of other people that were coming. But there was something different about Mary and Joseph's arrival, and we know that if we think of if we remember the backstory, Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, tell the backstory of this couple and their arrival in Bethlehem. And this is when the angel said to Mary, don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary protested, as you know, if you know this story, because she's a virgin. How can she be pregnant? How could she have a child? And the angel told her the Holy Spirit will come upon her, and the child that she will bear will be the Son of God. Joseph, who was engaged to Mary, also heard from the Lord, and together they accepted this special assignment from God to bring to us Jesus. Luke chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that the time for her birth occurred while they were in Bethlehem. By the way, the text itself doesn't really give us any urgency. Uh, the, the traditional conception of the story, the way we think of it, is Mary was kind of riding into town, you know, having contractions and going into a place. Got to find a place to have this baby right away. The text doesn't say anything about urgency. Likely that they thought like we would if you're pregnant. You might want to get there early. So they probably got there weeks early. They may have been days or weeks before she had the baby after she arrived in Bethlehem. But the relatives were probably reunited because they all had to come back to their ancestral home. So it was kind of a family reunion feel, I would assume. And the text says that Mary gave birth to her son and wrapped him in strips of cloth, laying him in a manger because there was no room, no lodging for him. Some texts say there was no room for him, for them in the inn. I want, I want to stop there for a minute because we need to understand what that means traditionally and what it probably was in first century Palestine. We get a lot of help here from a really great researcher named Kenneth Bailey who studied the ancient culture of Palestine and helps us to see not just this story, but all of the Gospels, not through our Western eyes, and we tend to skew things, but through first century Palestinian eyes. From that culture, we can see this very differently. The word Cataluma, in or lodging, 
uh, means guest room, house, or inn. And one of the New Testament commentators, Joel Green, said that it would be very doubtful for there to be an inn, like a, a hotel kind of inn, in Bethlehem. It was a very small town. It was not on any main thoroughfare, so it was very unlikely. And they didn't have holiday inns in every town like we would. So it's just very unlikely that there was a, a hotel kind of an inn in this city. And the word that's used when Luke does speak of an inn where people would come and say a commercial inn is not this word. The word that's used here is actually a word that means guest room. There wasn't a guest room for them. And this is where Kenneth Bailey and other archaeological evidence comes to help us. Most of what we're learning from ancient arche- from archaeology and from Kenneth Bailey's research is that homes in the, in the East in this era were, were made so that you bring your animals in at night. I mean, one, for safety and security, so no one steals them. Secondly, they probably provided a little bit of, of body heat and helped with the temperature in the home. So the animals, as well as the family, slept in one area. And there was another room called a guest room, Cataluma, which was the guest room in the home. So, and sometimes, by the way, they were built in caves. There's some tradition that says Jesus was born in a cave, and sometimes homes in Bethlehem in that era were built on a cave, so they'd bring their animals in at night. So here's how Bailey diagrams this uh, typical home in Palestine in Bethlehem at this time. So there was, the home had a cataluma, a guest room, but remember, Everyone had to go back to their ancestral hometown. The guest room's already taken, Mary and Joseph. Sorry, it's full of all kinds of other relatives. So, but, and the family room is full, but, you know, we want to take care of you. This helped me, by the way. One of the things that we always hear about Middle Eastern culture is how hospitable they are. And it always bothered me that here Mary and Joseph come to their ancestral town with all these family and no one wants to take care of them. Because everything we learn about Middle Eastern culture is hospitality. And what this does is it helps us to say that what Mary and Joseph probably experienced was houses full, guest rooms full. We want you to be here, but we don't have room in the guest room, so park in the stable where the animals are for the night. Another uh, model that's been made of a Jewish home shows a little bit of what it could have looked like. So see the animals would be at the lower level. People would live in the upper level. And that's probably what happened. By the way, I thought I'd throw in a couple of pictures. If you go over to Bethlehem today, these are some pictures of the traditional site of the birth of Jesus, the grotto there. So what I'm comfortable thinking likely occurred is Mary and Joseph came to town, stayed with extended family, along with many other relatives. The time came for her to deliver her baby, and she was, they were staying in this stable part of the home, and the bed that she had to use was a manger. Now, I don't say this to make you throw away your nativity set and rebuild that all, uh, but, but to realize sometimes what the difference is between our traditional understanding of a story and what the Bible is really talking to us and telling us, especially from that first century cultural perspective. It takes away the villain. We don't have a, a, a nasty night hotel manager who turns away Jesus and, or Mary and Joseph. Uh, but it still has a humble birth, isn't it? It's still a very humble setting. Mary and Joseph having this baby who these, this angel said was going to be the, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us. 
And yet there's nothing special here. A humble peasant girl and a humble carpenter, unknown, crammed in among animals and family with this hubbub, away from their home, knowing nothing familiar here. And they have this baby, Jesus, and the hands that sculpted mountain ranges were wrapped around the thumb of a little Jewish girl. The, uh, the eyes that had vision to create the universe, you know, squinted as an infant. It's just amazing. Deity, God helpless. Deity entering into this world dependent on Mary and Joseph next to some animals, some straw. That's just the first paradox of this baby's life, though. He would go on to demonstrate a lot of profound concepts that we, we read throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, but they're worth mentioning today. To be first, you must be last. To receive, you must give. To lead, you must serve. To be full, you must empty yourself. To be strong, you must become weak. And here's one, to live, you must die. To live, you must die. That's one that Mary lived out in a very painful way as a mother, isn't it? Because this baby who was born, as we sang about earlier, wasn't just born to be a a living Savior, but was born to be a Savior who would sacrifice his own life and die so that we might know life. And then we die to ourselves so that we might know the life of God. Paradox all over this story. So in some ways, it wasn't a very silent night. Throngs of people all around animals, commotion, and noise. But the silent part of his arrival isn't necessarily what was heard with ears. It was God's quiet entrance, God slipping silently and quietly and unnoticed into this mass of humanity. That's the silent entrance. Silent night, holy night. Shepherds quake at the sight. Glory stream from heaven afar. Heavenly hosts sing Alleluia. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Let's jump back in at verse 15 in Luke 2. That night there were shepherds staying in their fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will be great joy to all people The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem in the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to whom those God is pleased. When the angel had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. There's no more majestic, grandiose, splendid messenger than an angel. It's what Don talked about last week in the message. And there's no more mundane, commonplace, ordinary guy than a shepherd. Again, what a, what a paradox, what a contrast between the the wonder of the angelic voice and the recipients. This was a very humble profession. 
Not a lot of people aspire to be shepherds. It wasn't a career goal. You were born into a shepherding family or you couldn't find other work, so you became a shepherd. Routine, you did the same thing all the time. You took care of your sheep. You made sure they were fed, made sure they had water, made sure they were protected. There were some talk about them being outcasts of society. Maybe in later Judaism they were. The New Testament seems to have a slightly more favorable view than traditional Judaism. But the angels brought this messenger of God's message of God's arrival to this most unlikely group of shepherds. It's a theme that shows up in Jesus' ministry uh, as well. In the Beatitudes, Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's this kind of humility that gives us the proper perspective to encounter the wonder of the incarnation. But there's something else about the shepherds that we should note. This passage tells us that the shepherds were keeping watch over their flock, keeping watch over their flock. Now, it doesn't seem significant until we really pause and dive into that a little bit. In their humility and the humility of their status, it it makes sense. Wow, these humble shepherds were surprised and received this news, this account of the gospel. But from another perspective, they were the obvious choice because they were watching. They were watching. You see, shepherds were always watching. It's what they had to do. A shepherd had to be tending to the immediate needs of the sheep, but also have his eyes on the horizon to be watching for impending storms, to be watching to make sure the sheep are safe, to be watching for predators. They guarded their sheep from all these dangers. They had to be about the immediate, and they also had to be looking to the horizon. Tim Laniak, who studied shepherding in Palestine, authored a book called While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks. Reflections on Biblical Leaderships. If you're interested in learning more, I would encourage you to check this book out. While Shepherds Watch Their Flocks, Reflections on Biblical Leadership. He just studied all about first century shepherding and helps us to understand how we should implement these principles in our own lives and ministry. Here's what he had to say. At first, this activity of watching over your flock looks like passive inactivity. But watchfulness involves constant surveillance and active attention to what's happening, and I love this phrase, and constant concern over what might happen. They had to constantly be concerned over what might happen. I think that set them up perfectly to be the recipients of this news. Not that they were necessarily looking, but they're just the kind of guys that were always wondering what might happen here. And I wonder if God didn't say, hey, let's, let's tell the people that are watching. Let's tell the people that are watching. But nothing in their shepherding experience or playbook could have prepared them for this. Christ the Savior is born. The angel noticed the fear in their heart. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. This is the message of salvation. And that's how angels, they must have been pretty frightening creatures because they almost always had to say, don't, don't be afraid, I'm, I'm okay, I'm not gonna hurt you. Here's what I'm here to tell you. And that's what they did at this time. Christ the Savior is born. So whether it's the shepherds, that first century Palestine over the hills looking over Bethlehem, or Pastor Joseph Moore sitting on a hillside in Germany in 1818, looking over his village, or you and I sitting here on this hillside today, looking out over our families, our neighborhoods, our community, our city, 
Are we keeping watch? Are we constantly concerned about what might happen? Are we tending to the daily tasks of life with our eyes on the horizon? Because guess what? That God who had this amazing news for the shepherds in the first century has amazing news for you as well. Jesus wants to come into your life today, into my life today, every day in a new powerful way to help us to know the power and the glory and the mystery of this incarnation about God with us, Emmanuel, as Adam talked about a few weeks ago. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord at thy birth, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Let's jump back into Luke in verse 16. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. So the shepherds wanted to check out what, was God, what God was doing, what the angel had told them. So they run into the city of Bethlehem and they find Mary and Joseph and they tell this incredible experience and just wonder what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph. Like, who told you we just had a baby? Well, we're on this hillside and these angels showed up and they told us not to be afraid and they told us to come and check this out. And like, all right, here's my baby. And it's just amazing the message that was going out from these angels. And these humble shepherds show us a really important truth that this was the most accessible king, the most accessible king ever. That the king of kings was accessible to this humble group of shepherds as they came to him and as they came to worship and wonder and celebrate this miracle of his birth. He didn't come to the proud and powerful He didn't come to the key players who had proven all their leadership ability. He came to these lowly shepherds. And there they are looking, and I don't know if Jesus was in the manger or if Mary was holding the baby, and their eyes met Jesus' eyes. And they were looking into the face of God. And I wonder if that might be what Moore was capturing when he wrote, Radiant beams from thy holy face. Radiant beams from thy holy face. And then, this is, this is amazing to me, then they, then they went back to work. I mean, they, we've got a book deal in the making here. Let's get an agent. We're going to go on the speaking tour. We've got all kinds of people will want to buy this. No, that wasn't it. They just go back to work. But what was different? They went back to work glorifying and praising God for what they saw, didn't they? That's the message of this song, Silent Night. It's too great to keep to ourselves. It's too great to keep to ourselves this message. Whether it's experiencing the gift of Jesus by these first century shepherds or a 19th century pastor sitting on a hillside in Germany overlooking his village or first free church gathered together here. We come here each week and we worship and we experience God. And what do we do after we leave? That's the question of the day. That's the question of the day. For many of us, we need to ask the question, what's going back to our flocks look like? 
For these guys, it was going back to shepherding the sheep, but with a message of praising God and telling other people what just happened. What about you? Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your workplace, your neighborhood, people who God's calling you to reach out to. Are we taking this message back to our clubs, neighborhoods, communities, and families? Do they know that when we come here on Sunday morning, we see Jesus, we see this radiant face of God. Do they know that? They should. should be the clearest message we tell everybody, either overtly or covertly through our lives, is that we, we see the face of God and we, we want to help you to know and see this God who we worship. Jesus said it well in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world, If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. So to go back to where I started, there is a sense in which we've conquered the night in our culture with our technology and communication. But how much more was the night conquered when the light of the world quietly slipped into humanity, unannounced, except to a group of humble shepherds. That's when the night was conquered. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Father, thanks for the message of Jesus. Thank you for the wonder of his incarnation. Forgive us for allowing it to be commonplace in our lives and reignite in our own lives and hearts the incredible excitement and passion that those angels had or that the shepherds had when they heard the angels say that Jesus is born because he's just as alive today, just as ready to meet people's needs, just as ready to enter into our lives and relationships and bring about change and hope because it's just as the angel has told them, Christ the Savior is born. Amen.